All right, so good evening, everyone. I'm Leslie Massland, and this is Labor History Talks. Today, we'll be discussing The Fire Last Time, a history of the 1994 San Diego County workers' strike. We'll hear personal accounts from workers such as um, our very own Alex Wells, retired member Luz Viafana, read by Sandra Obledo, retired um, county worker Dee Myers, and current county employee and SEIU 221 executive board member Linda Crea. Before we start, um, I'm going to read a small snippet from an article published today by Vice that sets the stage quite well. You'll find the link in the chat for you to read at your leisure. I'm just going to read the first couple of um, sections. So, Something extraordinary is happening in factories, universities, hospitals, and movie studios across America. Workers are authorizing strikes and shutting down production in numbers that many young people have never seen before in their lifetimes. The numbers are incredible. More than 10,000 workers at John Deere went on strike last week for the first time in 35 years. Roughly 1,400 cereal production workers at Kellogg's factories walked off the job in early October. More than 24,000 Kaiser Permanente hospital workers in California and Oregon have authorized a, a strike. Some 61,000 film and TV workers were prepared to strike and walk out this week until a temporary agreement was reached on Saturday. It would have been the largest Hollywood strike since before World War II. The list of striking or on the verge of striking workers includes whiskey makers, coal miners, steel workers, bus drivers, and grad students. By withholding their labor power, workers around the country are pressuring their employees to offer them a better deal for their work. There's a new strike wave happening now, says Alexander Colvin, the Dean of Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations, noting that this strike activity didn't come out of nowhere and has slowly crept upward in recent years after all-time lows of the early 2000s. The pandemic disrupted a lot of things and left workers dissatisfied and wanting to see change. That is combined with an increase in worker bargaining power. There are lots of job openings and high quit rates and expectations are going up. For most of the 1990s, 2000s and 2010s, labor activity in the United States dwindled, but this fall's strike wave which has been called hashtag striketober on Twitter and has received vocal support from politicians and celebrities, but could help bring the strike back into the popular consciousness. This is about wages, a striking John Deere worker in Davenport, Iowa told Motherboard last week. With what other people are paying, it doesn't matter if this is McDonald's or Wendy's. We've been stagnant compared to, to everybody else. It's been steadily getting worse since I've been here, as far as, I, as far as how I've been treated, said a striking Kellogg's mechanic in Battle Creek, Michigan. Kellogg's has made it very clear that anybody new who starts would never have a path to a pension or premium healthcare. The main issue really is our future. Our future is not for sale. For those that entered while I was reading, I was Put the 
uh, link to that article in the chat. You can read it at your leisure. Um, Avery, did you have anything you wanted to say before we got started with our speakers? Uh, no, go ahead and have everybody take it away, Leslie. Thank you. All right. So let's go ahead and get started with Alex Wells. Are you ready? Yep, can you hear me? All right. Yes, we do hear you. So go ahead and take it away. Awesome. So uh, my talk is going to be more about the background of the 94 strike, kind of the uh, where the labor movement was at at that point in time, and then we can have other people talk about the strike more itself. So in early 1970, Postal workers, especially in New York City, faced abysmal conditions. Their starting salary was less than half that of cops and transportation workers. Many full-time postal workers qualified for food stamps and welfare, and many more were forced to uh, many more were forced to take a second job. Uh, they worked unpaid overtime, sometimes totaling 80 hours a week, and the same number of workers was forced to process an ever-increasing volume of mail. So all this is to say that they had no control over the working conditions um, and no bargaining rights. Their only legal option under the terms of their contract was to beg Congress for better treatment. But at the time, their uh, you know, raises, even keeping up with uh, cost of living, was being held hostage by Congress in negotiation because the Nixon administration was trying to privatize the Postal Service um, as uh, the neoconservative movement has, well, uh, you know, as Trump finally managed to do to a large extent. Um, in 1970, in New York City, uh, workers voted for a wildcat strike, and they began picketing in uh, just a few hours after that. Over the next eight days, over 200,000 workers at 499 post offices in 30 cities and 13 states would walk off the job. This represented at least 30% of the country's mail carriers, and it was the largest strike against federal government in American history up to that point. Um, their demands included retirement after 20 years for the full pension, life insurance, wages adjusted to the local cost of living and the legal right to strike uh, because as federal employees, they are not legally allowed to strike. Um, during the course of this uh, wildcat strike, New York's financial industry was brought to its knees. The flow of checks, bonds, and stock certificates was halted overnight. And the strike also prevented the delivery of 9,000 draft cards for the ongoing war in Vietnam. On the sixth day of the strike, President Nixon declared a national emergency he deployed 24,000 National Guard troops to New York City to sort the mail as scabs. Uh, of course, they, uh, this failed miserably after two days. It turned out postal workers' skills were irreplaceable, and uh, many of them started to fraternize with the strikers. So all in all, the strike ended after eight days. Workers won a 14% wage increase, including retroactive pay. Uh, they did win collective bargaining rights. Um, Within a couple of years, the entry-level post-strike salary was higher than the priest high-strike salary. Um, and probably most importantly, Congress, Congress recognized the major unions and no strikers were punished in any way for taking part in the strike. And uh, this, this resulted in the recognition of the largest postal workers union in the world at the time. But most importantly, it was still illegal for federal employees to strike. And uh, one of the reasons we can see is this was too successful. Um, so the 1970s were a high watermark for huge strikes. This was uh, amid a declining rate of profit for manufacturers and a series of economic shocks, including inflation, recession, and the oil crisis. And all of this ended up hitting workers the hardest. So in 1970 alone, one in six union members went on strike, including miners, teamsters, general, and general motor workers. 
as well as air traffic controllers. Um, this represented the largest strike wave since 1946. Uh, this was also a high point for union membership. So starting in the 70s and continuing until the present, women and people of color make up the majority of union membership. At the time, 44% of black women, uh, sorry, 44% of black men in the private sector were union members. And the number and percentage of workers voting in union elections was still as high in the 70s that had been during the 50s and 60s, that is at historic high. And lots of these union members were also involved in the civil rights struggle and the anti-war movement. So the combination of the labor movement with an anti-racist movement and the anti-imperialist movement meant that you know, they were employing an increasingly militant approach on a nationwide scale. So uh, it shouldn't surprise us, the 1970s also saw the beginning of society-wide assault against labor unions. Uh, this was organized by employers and their allies in the government, and it really, really picked up steam under Reagan in the 1980s. So neoliberal capitalism would spend the next 40 years at war against unions, and they promised not to get caught off guard by a strike again. So I mentioned that also in 1970, as well as the postal strike, air traffic controllers, uh, having recently formed a union two years ago, um, were facing more work and the same number of overstretched employees. So in 1970, 2,000 workers staged a sick out. This was a loophole because uh, as federal workers, they were banned from formally going on strike, but you know, by flexing their power, they forced the government to the negotiating table. So this was another successful strike, even though, again, technically strikes were illegal. So they tried this kind of thing again in 1981. 13,000 uh, members of the air traffic controller union uh, went on strike. Sorry, this is a much more famous strike. Uh, Reagan ordered them back to work, but only 10% of them complied. So he fired the other 90%, about 11,300-ish workers, and banned them from federal jobs for life. So um, in a way, he kind of called their bluff that you know they assumed he wouldn't ruin the entire airline industry for you know indefinitely until he could <laughs> retrain uh, all the scabs. But he ended up doing that and you know wrecking the industry in the short term to build uh, you know, employer power in the medium term. Um, it ended up being less money for uh, the government to, you know, the government and airlines to train new workers and to meet the union's demands. So this was part of uh, austerity, uh, which is part of a decades-long assault on the working class. It included attacking unions, privatization and deregulation, outsourcing jobs leading to layoffs, uh, cutting social services, all of which combined to destroy American workers' power over American capital, essentially because so much uh, production was concentrated overseas out of the uh, reach of US labor. Um, and politically, both major parties were moving to the right. Republicans were coalescing around Reaganism and Democrats uh, soon under Clinton were abandoning union support. So, you know, we could see the free trade movement, uh, including bills like NAFTA, as leading to more layoffs inside the US and less economic power for workers. And at the same time, there was a decline in union jobs so during the recession that started in 1979, the amount of strikes were cut in half. Over the next two years, unions lost a quarter of their membership. This is mostly in the private sector. Uh, during the same time period, the public sector actually made gains, um, which will be important moving forward. Um, there were 235 major work stoppages in 1979. And uh, however, only six years later, this had reduced to 54 major work stoppages in 1995. Um, so, uh, as we move into the 90s, there was another recession, which always puts extra pressure on the working class and uh, makes the consequences of the strike uh, much larger. 
This recession was from 1990 to 91. In California, it lasted a couple more years. So by 1994, there was a $4 billion budget deficit in California. And as part of this austerity movement nationwide, uh, kind of both parties agreed to continuous cuts to education and social services. Uh, both the state government and the local San Diego County government were kind of centrist Republican at the time. Um, you know, the two parties were not as far apart. And, you know, both of them agreed that, you know, when it came to economic hardship and, you know, a budget deficit, uh, you know, they agreed that the best way to do that was to cut social services and to scapegoat immigrants. Um, this was the same year, 1994, as Republican Governor Pete Wilson's anti-immigrant Prop 187, uh, which banned the use of federal funds for undocumented immigrants. Um, at the same time, the San Diego County Board of Supervisors was three-fifths Republican, um, including the recently elected Diane Jacob. So all of this means that in 1994, the uh, striking SAIU members were kind of under the absolute worst environment for a strike, just you know, in a broad uh, economic sense. And the fact that they succeeded anyway under the worst conditions imaginable uh, should give us hope that you know, in this era of you know, certainly a short-term spike in union activity and hopefully uh, you know, the, the beginning of a new trend of an upswing in union activity, uh, hopefully this should give us hope for the future. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Next up, we have Sandra Obledo reading um, an account from retired member Luz Viafana. Hi, everybody. Normally, I would go ahead and uh, show my face, but because this isn't mine, it's just my voice, um, I'll leave it at that. That's okay. Okay, so this is by Luz. It starts off with, our union reps had been coming to our Escondida office to inform members about the end of the contract. Things had changed dramatically since amnesty for undocumented people qualified for many benefits provided by social services. Thousands of bilingual workers had been hired and most joined SEIU 535. Our main complaint was the racism we experienced from supervisors and mostly Anglo older workers. We were paid 25 cents an hour more for being bilingual and Hispanic and it was very much resented by supervisors and older coworkers. I don't remember how old the previous contract was. New issues had to be addressed in 1994. We began to have break time side door union meetings by our worksite union stewards. These stewards had given notice to management about these information meetings. Word got around and our side door meetings grew. Our stewards were committed to have our members and coworkers be informed for the rights of the rights and the importance of staying united. Some resisted to join due to having union dues deducted from their pay. They were informed about how our good workers benefits were due to a strong union. Some believed that the reps had to do the work on their own, just as one, hire, one hires an attorney. No need for members to be involved other than to complain about what they didn't like about the work overload, nasty supervisors, very old and uncomfortable office furniture, people speaking Spanish, crowded office space, and even the smell of Mexican food being warmed up in the kitchen at lunchtime. Most of the new hires had older family members that had been union members back in the 30s, 50s, and 60s, when unions were very strong. And we spoke about how unions had built the middle class and prosperity for workers' families. We were able to have quite a few workers join. We made it clear that the county could very well diminish or do away with some benefits, so that prompted some more workers to join. 
We spoke with passion and conviction about the value of our work, language skills, and customer service within our office and to the public that we served. Some workers were doubtful that our union activism in the workplace would make any difference. Management was a mix of supervisors that related or retaliated against us, the activists, by calling us into the, their office and informing us about coworkers' complaints, that we were disrupting the office atmosphere and other nonsense. We stayed strong, supported the leader's core on ongoing and got in touch with our rep for supportive guidance. Union leadership in our office were mostly female. We had the training in our younger years when the women's rights, women's liberation were fought on the streets, the courts, and even the churches. And then she makes a reflection here on brackets saying younger and the ones that affiliated with the other political party, county workers in 1984 were pessimists, conformists, and fearful. We, the core activists, weren't afraid as we were guided by our union reps that were available to us when we were encountered resistance from our office management and pass that confidence onto our coworkers. We had confidence that we were valuable and very much needed to serve our new legalized San Diego County residents and that the county had invested millions in training all of us to get the benefits rolling out correctly and timely. We came to the point where we were facing a strike as the county was taking a hard stand to negotiate in good faith. We had other hardcore professional union leaders come to help us out to face the county and their hard stand. The coworkers that had been on the sidelines became interested in joining even to the point of going on strike. We knew that there would be a lot of negative news publicity by the media. We were notified by management not to call in sick without a doctor's note. So I notified my doctor a few days in advance and she said she would provide me with a doctor's note without a problem. On the morning of the strike, we showed up early with our union colors and our huge signs and we walked around the office and the sidewalk around the office building. From 7 a.m. or before, dozens of us started marching making a loud racket. We knew our negotiating team would be ready if the county wanted to negotiate in good faith that morning. Soon after, we had the news trucks filming and interviewing and interviewing our members and leaders. Around 10 or 11 a.m., we were notified that the County of San Diego had agreed to sign the contract. The County of San Diego was made aware that serving the public must be their number one priority and County HHS is the agency that provides quality services. We are valuable in keeping the health services running smoothly without disruption 24 seven, rain or shine, earthquakes or fires. Stay strong, join the union. Union fees are your insurance to protect your job and your rights as a worker under a legal contract. You are valuable and that is powerful. And then she adds at the end, this is the best I can remember of my experience with the short strike back in 1994. As we are opening up from long months of staying at home, I hope to be more active with union activities in Zoom and perhaps in person when a just new contract is negotiated and agreed upon. Thank you, Sandra. Great job. Next up, we have Dee Myers. Good evening. Um, my recollection of it was uh, different because I was at a different location. And mine starts about when my oldest son was about 10 months old. And what happened with the strike is, is that it was a slow boil. We as county employees have been slowly boiling. I remember the part that we um, had money taken away from us. 
It was called voluntary time off. And what they did for about two years, we had, I started off at $9 an hour. They took $2 an hour away from everyone. So I, then I went down to $7 an hour. And we did that. That was the contract before this last contract that, that we were going to strike one. They said, okay, if you guys do this voluntary time off, no one will be um, laid off. So we did. We all voted in the whole county. There were about 17,000 workers at that time. They voted. And so for a year and a half, possibly two, everybody lost $2 an hour from their pay to help build up the county. Well, after that was over, we thought, okay, all right, we're gonna to come to the table and they're gonna reward us for helping them. No, no. I took my 10 month old baby with me for a candlelight vigil at the CAC. And that was in 91. So for the next three years, we marched, we wrote, we did everything we could. And, it, and at that time, the, everyone in the county, all the county workers were getting slowly mad because of the economics. They didn't give us back uh, the amount of $2. So when they, the voluntary time over was, you started at the $7. So slow boiling happening, slow boiling happening. And we're going to the different uh, meetings and everything. So finally, people had enough. So the union called for the strike. And see, at that time, I worked at a 24-hour facility. And our awesome senior steward was Allison Barkley. So Allison Barkley, myself, and some other people, we had to figure out how we were going to strike at a 24-hour facility. Polinsky Children's Center is a um, shelter for abused and neglected children. And we had like, uh, I think it's six cottages. So what we did was Allison and, and I striked. We were on the line we had timers. And so what would happen is, is different workers would come out and at Polinsky Children's Center, you don't get a lunch. So what happened was, is that they would come out on their break, their timer would go off, they'd run back, they, they'd slap hands with the next worker and then the next worker would come out. And if we had a shift change, the shift change happened, the people from the shift change was over striking. So then we got word, Allison, shut down your strike line. Go down to CAC because the county is about to do your demands. So I don't recall how long it took for that paycheck, for that, for that raise to get into our paychecks, but I do recall that my 10 month old baby in 91, we didn't get a raise until 94. So, you know, he had to be about five or six by the time we saw it in our paycheck. It can be done. They will 
let go of their reins. And I was about to be a divorced mom and I put it all on the line. I had two children by the time we striked. Thank you, Dee, for your account. It does take a long time to see change, but we can get there. Next up, we have Linda Correa. Hi, everybody. Um, uh, first of all, I want to apologize in case I have to take a drink of water. I'm having some sore throat issues. So I'm hoping I'm not getting sick. Um, my name is Linda Correa. I'm currently right now an HSS, which is what we used to be considered an eligibility technician back in the day. And I started with the county 28, over 28 years ago. It'll be 29 years in February. I started in February 1993. I started as an off, as an intermediate clerk typist. It was, which is now an office assistant, the clerical position. And I remember I, I started working in the health department for three months, and then I got um, in the North County at the Escondido um, uh, Health Center, health department. And I remember being interviewed by uh, three um, OA supervisors from the office next door, which was social services. And um, they needed bilingual workers. So they offered me a position as an OA to transfer over into their office. So I did, you know, it was next door. We had three offices back then in the day. It was uh, the old 60 buildings that we had on East Valley Parkway in Escondido. And um, so I transferred over to the social services office. And um, that was maybe three months after I had started working with the county. And I've been with the Escondido office since then in the North Inland. Um, so I started as an office assistant and I was working in the day that we were coming up to the strike in 1994. I remember the um, collective meetings that we were having in order to um, plan our strategic um, strike, our walkouts, our picketing that we would do on East Valley Parkway during our breaks, during our lunch times. And the day of the strike, when it came to, I remember working in the, in the mail area and our stewards back then were so active. Everybody was involved. Everybody wanted to participate. Those that did not have the fear to at least walk out on a strike. And being such a new employee, and I believe I was just out of probably probation at that time because probation uh, the way they handled them back in the day are different than they are now. Um, it looks like they've shortened them now, I believe. But back in the day, it was a year and a half you would be on probation. Um, and I remember working in the mail area and um, we were in negotiations that day. So everybody was on uh, high, you know, high alerts just waiting and seeing what was going to happen, whether the county was going to come back and really give us a fair deal. And I remember working, sitting there, and I got tapped on the shoulder by one of our stewards and said, Linda, it's time to go. It's time to get up. Uh, and I just remember getting up at that point and saying, okay, let's go. Let's do this. And we all walked out of the back area of the building all the way to the front on East Valley Parkway in Escondido. And we started, you know, marching up and down. 
Um, at that point, the plan was to make sure that we shut down business, make sure that it affected the services that we were giving to get the attention of the Board of Supervisors at that time, which were those five Board of Supervisors. We just barely got them out. Um, and believe it or not, they have been in office that long. Um, and I remember we walked out to the front and noticing that in those days we had lines of people that would go around the buildings. People, the homeless lines, when they would come in and check out, you know, on the for their mail or pick up their services, you know, get services, people that were just coming in to try and get, you know, answers regarding their cases. They were up in an uproar, you know, as we were walking towards the front of the street to march and to picket. I remember clients saying, what are we going to do? Who's going to who's going to help us up at the front? Because the front lobby was empty. There were no clerical, no staff up at the front. And by then we had um, we had been told that to make sure that we let clients know to make sure to call the board of supervisors and let them know, hey, you know what's going on? Why aren't your employees working? And so um, having a clients call and make an impact with the Board of Supervisors would impact them and maybe force them to, hey, make them realize what's going on. Our offices are shutting down. So when we walked to the front and we were picketing at that time, I don't think it even took like more than three hours before we were called back into the office to tell us that the county had agreed to give us what we had asked for. And at that point, as a new employee, you know, fear does get kicked in when you think, oh my God, we're going to go on strike. What if we don't get an answer? What if this lasts longer than, than a day or two? What are we going to do, right? But once we got the call that we were going back into work and that the county had agreed to what our bargaining team had worked so hard to get us, for me, it was an eye-opener because um, I was a new employee and I was a new member, a new union member under Local 2028 as an intermediate clerk typist, which is an office assistant position. And I was just getting my feet wet into the county. And I made, it made me proud to be a union member at that point because it made me realize that just stepping out, <clears throat> stepping out and taking action was the actual voice that was also taking place on our part to let the county know, hey, we mean, we mean business. But, you know, you can't play with people's lives. Um, and we were talking about employees that had been their way before I was even there. So, you know, to me at that point, going back to work and, you know, people being happy with what we got in that contract, made me realize how important it was to continue being a union member and really stepping up to the plate to make to try and make a difference you know and the union isn't the staff at the local the union is us and really it's up to us to step up to the plate as we see those that are struggling now and they're striking right so we have to help one another we have to support one another that's what the union is is us and we have to be and continue being unified um, and that's what I remember about the 1994 strike. It was a short one, but it's something I will never forget. And that is something that 
I take that value because we have to remember when something like that comes to us and we have to make a harsh decision to step up to the plate and, and take action. And if we have to strike, let's not let the fear kick in. We have to be fearless. We have to be united. We have to continue to let our employer know that we are speaking up. This is something that we're fighting for and this is what we want. And um, when I became an HSS or an eligibility technician back in the day, I became a caseworker in 1999. Then I continued being a member uh, with local 535. And then years after that, of course, we trans we merged and 2028 and 535 became local 221. Um, at that point, I decided I wanted to continue being an active member. I became part of several executive board um, boards with um, SEIU. Um, and the most important thing was becoming a steward at the, at the beginning was when I became a worker, that's when I decided to become a steward. And just being there for your coworkers and knowing that you're doing the right thing to protect them from abuse from an employer or, you know, uh, accusations from uh, inaccurate accusations from an employer, right? You have to take action and, and protect one another. And when we see fit that it is correct that we're doing as stewards, we, we must continue taking action and, and being um, more uh, informed um, and making sure that we are doing what we should be doing as stewards, as union stewards, and setting the example for the rest of our staff regarding what, no matter what department they're in. Um, and so when I became a steward, I, that's when I decided to become part of the executive board. And now more than anything, I see changes in the way we are now doing things. And I think we should be prepared because you never know we may have new board of supervisors, but then who knows in negotiations or in bargaining, we might not see what we, we might not get what we want. And so it's important that we have it in our back of our minds and be prepared in case we do have to strike, in case we do have to take action. Um, but we must continue to be active. We must continue to, um, we must, sorry about that, my dog. We must continue to um, stay informed and continue um, gaining momentum and activation and try to, um, you know, get more union members active and get the word out. We must be more, having more conversations with our union members. And I can't emphasize how important it is not to have that fear. And now that we have a strike fund, it's even more important as well, too, because that will also uh, give us more of peace of mind, you know, and the simple fact that we must continue with that mission and that, that message to the new members and let them know that we must have peace of mind knowing that becoming a member is so important because it makes us stronger at the bargaining table. It makes us, those numbers, the county does look at those numbers when we're negotiating for our contract. They wanna know how many people are you really representing? How many members do you really have? How strong are you? And I think it's important that we continue the momentum now and 
and, and talk to our coworkers, letting them all how important it is to be um, a member and, and have that peace of mind that, hey, you know, there could be a day that we may have to go on strike again. There, you know, we never know. Maybe these new board of supervisors won't see what we see and they may not want to give us what we are asking for at the bargaining table. So it's really important for us to be prepared and, and engaging that with our members, engaging that with the new staff that's coming in and, and making sure that we get more members to become more stronger because no one is the union other than us. It's not the local, it's not the staff. The staff are there to support us and to um, teach us how to take action, how to speak up because, you know, they're, they're our support. They're our number one support. And so we are the ones to take action and stand up and say, hey, this is what we got to do. Um, and so, you know, and for that, I'm thankful for the staff that we have. I'm thankful for the new president that we have. And I'm thankful for the new members and the new faces that I see on the new executive board. And I think it's awesome. Um, and like I said, we must not be, we must be fearless. We cannot be fear, have fear of anything. And strikes are possible and they're happening now. And we must be supportive, not only to those brothers and sisters, but to each other within us here in SEIU 221. We must continue that momentum and that strength. And we must continue to have that conversation no matter what. We can't let one day pass and we must continue that um, because that's what's gonna make us bigger. I know back in the day, um, before we even got prepared for the 1994 strike, I remember going to the Scottish Rite and there were gobs, gobs of members. I mean, tons of members where we would meet uh, from you know, different departments. And, you know, I, and I think we must continue that. We must make that the big mission and a goal for us. Um, and um, I think that's all I can remember from the 1994 strike, but I remember not being scared, I, you know, because I had the support from our coworkers and our stewards. Um, and just, you know, we must not endure that fear in our members. We must be fearless and we must continue the, the mission, like I said. And I, I can't emphasize the importance of really getting that message out and that we must continue to be union strong, unified and strong together. We are here to support one another. And I thank you for this opportunity for me to um, give a little bit of my story. <laughs> thank you so much, Linda, and everybody who shared their accounts and wisdom from the 1994 strike. What strikes me is um, how familiar all of this sounds, right? In all of our work that um, we did in supporting each other as union siblings for hazard pay, um, it is a reminder that the work is never done. 